This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. This is Sean McNulty from the Wake Up Newsletter here at The Ankler here on the Jersey Shore on the afternoon of Wednesday, November 15th. A bit of a special edition of the Ankler podcast. I'm joined by Elaine Lowe in Los Angeles. And now that SAG-AFTRA has made a deal with the Hollywood's major studios and streamers, it's currently out to the union's 160,000-plus membership for approval, and uh, votes are due in by Tuesday, December 5th. While we don't have the full deal, we do have a lot of pertinent details in a summary that the Guild put out, especially around AI protections and a new streaming residuals structure. Elaine, can actors dress up as Oompa Loompas next Halloween, or is that yay or nay? Was that, was that in the deal? I'm sorry, I believe I that, that is back on the table. So SAG <laughs> okay. members can dress up to their heart's desire, like Timothy Chalamet or, or anyone. <laughs> Whatever you want. I mean, let's get to the real, the real important stuff here, Elaine. But you did a sit-down this week with two members of the Guild's negotiating committee to really dive into the particulars of uh, what's in this agreement. So, Elaine, what do you got? Right. So after SAG's big press conference last week, I got a chance to talk to SAG after President Fran Drescher and Chief Negotiator Duncan Crabtree Ireland. That's on a separate pod if folks want to listen, but really got to drill down into the nitty gritty with two of the Guild's negotiating committee members, uh, Michelle Hurd, who is known for Star Trek Picard and Blindspot, as well as Kevin E. West. Uh, you know, they're both longtime actors, have been part of the negotiating committee cycles before, and really really wanted to offer up an understanding of some of the key issues that will impact membership, especially AI, which is an enormous part of the discussion, and this new streaming residual structure. And so they were breaking down some of that for me as well as, you know, some other issues that weren't really headline issues, but impact the journeyman performer. So, you know, for anyone interested in really just drilling down on some of these issues, it's a, it's a good listen. There's a lot of details, which I'm sure you get into. So uh, why don't we go to the interview? Here is Michelle Hurd and Kevin E. West from the SAG-AFTRA Negotiating Committee. All right. So we are now a couple days out from SAG having announced a deal. How are you both feeling? Both of you are negotiating committee members. You've been in this for the long haul. It's been a long couple of months for the industry. Michelle, how are you feeling? Quite honestly, I'm exhausted because this has been a very long, painful, challenging, emotional, difficult uh, journey doing this whole negotiation. And, you know, people have to remember that we who are on the negotiating committee and on the board in general, we've been working about this uh, contract for over a year. So this has been a really long journey. And I have had so many mixed emotions in the past four days, I say excitement and and uh, pride and then disappointment and um, frustration. Uh, you know, one of the things I find, you know, truly the most dis- uh, disappointing uh, and frustrating for myself is that during this strike, our union, our members have been so phenomenal and they have stuck by us. They have supported us. Every single time I got on the picket line, there's people would just come up to me and they would tell us how much they were supportive of us. And what kind of broke my heart a bit is that the moment that we made the deal, 
we hadn't even published the contract yet for any eyes to see. And some of our members instantly said that the contract was shit, you know, and that it's terrible and don't vote it up and all, you know, just, you know, went right back to this old, terrible habit of some of our members wanting to bash SAG-AFTRA, mm-hmm. which I always find so interesting because all of our members are SAG-AFTRA. So when they say things like, you know, they're trying to bamboozle us and they're trying to do nefarious things and, you know, they get so mad and I don't believe it. I want to see the full contract. I want to see this, you know, and you just want to go, you guys, you guys, I mean, Kevin and I are in the, I don't, I'm looking for the bamboozleness. You know, if there's bamboozleness, it's over there. We are actors with you. And, you know, we have some of the most um, intelligent lawyers and learned people in our staff. You know, there was times where people have said um, they don't like the paycheck, that uh, the salary that our lawyers and our, you know, our negotiators get. They are paid that money because they're that good and we are lucky to have them. If they were on the free market, they'd be getting twice as much. They work with us because they love actors. I have seen some recent criticism, especially around the AI portion of this, even yep. though right now what is available to the public is, uh, I think, like an 18-page summary. And I know there are webinars for, for members to learn more, yep. but the actual memorandum hasn't been even released yet. It's never released at this, the moment the deal. It's never released because there's so many pages and so many if, ands, and buts that both lawyers have to go through. Right now, we, are have, we have lawyers looking at every single detail, and it'll be released in a few weeks. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I find so interesting is that I, I have a hard time trying to get my actors to read their deal memos. And yet, which is only if you pay, and now they want to read this entire legalese contract that's 400 pages. I, you know, that 18 page that you wrote, that's, that's literally how it's done mm-hmm. in any kind of negotiation, any kind co- real estate negotiation, you know, any, any negotiation, there's the legal document. And then there is an, a summary, know, summary, a, a summary. Thank you, my love. Right. A summary that is made, that is written in layman's terms so that we can all understand it. Right. Nothing's being hidden. Nothing's being hidden. And, and I wish people would track that because you want to say, so would we, the negotiating committee and the union, be hiding something from our members? I, well, I'm, a, I'm a member. I'm a member. Yeah. Where I'm currently at is it's it's been exhausting. A lot of exhilaration, a lot of tears, uh, certainly some smiles and some relief. And then you you do transition into the reality of having to I don't want to not defend the contract, but have people try right. to to grasp and understand. I think the biggest thing to me about this negotiation, again, one of the things the strike did create, which I personally absolutely love, is the level of engagement that more members have. Again, you know, we had almost yeah. 50% vote. It was almost a 98% pre-authorization, strike authorization, and that is great, and I love having more people involved. But also there's a lot of non-understanding about governance and how the union functions. And on on the precipice of a vote for such a large, complex contract, uh, there's a little bit of conflict that exists in those two sort of really positive things that are kind of butting up against each other now that, that more people are interested and involved. And I love it. But this contract is the most complex, uh, most comprehensive contract I'm pretty sure I feel comfortable saying in the history of this union, for sure. Have either of you been on previous negotiating committee cycles? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. So yeah, yeah. So you've been through this rodeo before. Yeah. And that's a good point because like in 2017, our, 
you know, our completed contract that, that was 77 pages in 2020, it was about 148 pages. This one, because of exactly what Kevin said, it's the most comprehensive, which means complex as well. It's over 400 pages, Wow! you know? So, and those ones, the ones that 2017 and 2020, anybody who wants to go see it can see it. You can get that full thing. So you will be able to get this one. Just Everybody take a deep breath. Yeah, the elements of it, Elaine, are the fact that we in this contract itself, you have you have the triangle of difficulty, which is you have elements that we're negotiating that would be considered sort of linear analog from old school. You have aspects of this contract like high budget AVOD and SVOD where you're trying to increase terms that are just current in terms of streaming. And then you have the whole futuristic part of this and the part of this that has never been a part of this contract that is AI, self-tape, and also the success fund. So there's just a triangle of, of massive complexity in this contract that also was obviously a part of the negotiation that is um, just kind of makes your head spin a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And let's talk about the AI component of that, which really has been spotlighted throughout both the writer's strike and the actor's strike as such a, a forward-facing, looming concern. Can you help us break down exactly what the parameters are now around these guardrails. Because my understanding is that there's consent, there's compensation. You know, I talked to Fran and Duncan the other day. They said that essentially there has to be consent around forming, quote unquote, synthetic performers when you're getting features, when you're using, you know, whatever, George Clooney's eyes and Julia Roberts' mouth, like consent has to be formulated around that. Um, What else are some of the key components of the AI protections that are built into this new contract? Michelle? Well, one thing I, yeah, what I want to say first, um, and then Kevin can take over it, but I, I want to say first is that everybody needs to realize that AI technology has been around. We are playing catch up right now. They've been using it. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble here, but when Spider-Man was swinging between the Twin Towers, that was not Tobey Maguire. Okay. This is, there's a reason that they utilize digital doubles. There's also times when there's stunts in a movie that they want to do that is actually too dangerous, life dangerous for the stunt, stunt men. So they will use a digital double. So this has already been happening. And, and I, you know, I'm speaking now in our industry, but deep fakes, as we all know, has been happening in the world. People have been taking people's faces and putting it on other bodies. So all this stuff is happening. So what we're trying to do is to get language, language in the contract that acknowledges that we have a right to demand consent, compensation, and P&H contributions. If without that language, it's going, it will still be the Wild West because we have no idea how, how fast this technology is going to continue to progress. So the most important thing that we were trying to do, and we always said this, was to, to create some guard rules and some, you know, some accountability and compensation for the use of our likeness. That's what this contract was. There was n- never going to be a moment where we were going to say, you studios can never, ever use AI technology again. We don't have that power as an act, as a, as a union. I will tell you, however, if we had done that, if we had missed the opportunity to get language into a contract, acknowledging from both sides that the actor has the right to ask and demand these things and say we did that with the studios and they said, oh, okay, we won't do it. Every other person that's not in a studio in our negotiating 
could start using AI technology and have already using technology and could be as abusive as they want. We would still not have any um, control over that. So just because we would say, you know, like you guys should have told the, you know, those guys not to do it. Say we did and say they listened. It doesn't stop AI technology. It's out here. It's being utilized from everybody. So this seems to address some of the, the the criticism that's already out there around having stronger protections. And it sounds like you're saying the technology is there. It's a matter of figuring out how to work with the technology in a way that still protects the performer or not banning it completely. It is. And 100%. the fact that we have those protections around an employment-based digital replica, the fact that we have union consent related to the creation of a synthetic performer via the ability of generative AI and, and the training uh, using generative AI, the fact that that exists and in, in we have a lot of consternation that's occurring related to the independent uh, digital replica, when you're not being employed, it's not associated with a particular picture. They just simply want to utilize and, and scan you and just create an independent digital replica. And it because, right, the language that we have set up for that, because it's not associated with a particular picture. This came up just yesterday in an educational webinar that we were doing. The reality is old school. I've negotiated several of my own contracts over the years. I'm sure Michelle has in her own way because that's the nature of misheard in certain circumstances. The good part is whether it's parents of a teenager or whether it's a young performer who has not have a lot of experience, the greatest thing about, even though that is currently freely bargained as an independently created digital replica, all you have to do is just go ahead and use the exact language we have in the employment base digital replica and you'd be fine and just say this is only limited to this picture. It's based on a full day's pay per day, et cetera, et cetera. So the language is not in that part of our contract, but the language already exists in our contract. So the protections we have at the moment without question in terms of the existence of a human being and the usage of a human being are currently the best in the world. And there are people who just simply say, you know, well, we should, you should just only use a human and we can't have AI. There's an element of that that is unfortunately just simply not a, not living in the real world. I'm, a, I'm an idealist, but I'm a pragmatic idealist. So there you go. So I'm curious about what pockets of the industry you see being impacted most by this. And I mean, you know, outside of the on-screen talent, you know, I had somebody who floated the idea of, well, what about when it comes to voiceover, when it comes to doing, you know, uh, like voice matching or ADR or something like that? Does that then sort of open the door if the, you know, if a main performer gives gives permission for them to use their voice, like why wouldn't the studio just use like an AI version of that person's voice and then sort of, you know, precludes other humans from you know, being part of that job? It's a great question. Everybody's asking that. First, let's discuss the, uh, you know, making a digital replica, right? Mm -hmm. It's expensive, <laughs> right? You make the digital replica and then you're going to store it. It's the storing really that's expensive. Maybe if you have scanned and created a digital replica of Brad Pitt, that is helpful. Like you can do that. You will store that because you can use Brad Pitt, but to utilize, to store all of us, just any actor in a in some kind of vault is just is not financially smart or even efficient for any studio. So that's not going to happen. The fact that, you know, when you said that, uh, who's it impacting? I, I, I do want to speak on the background people because before, remember before they were being scanned and utilized, no compensate, no, not, not even knowing about it, no monies at all. And there's a fear of that. Yeah, I've spoken to background actors who have been scanned. That was my next question. What, what happens there? Right. That, it's awful. Now, background actors have the exact same protections. 
if a, if you are being, you, first of all, you have to be asked. And, and here's another thing I just want to make clear because everybody's freaking out. They're saying, well, you know, what if I don't want to be scanned? What if I don't want to be scanned? I understand that. I understand that. But again, using my example, if you are auditioning for a Marvel movie and you're auditioning for, say, to play a superhero, if you don't want to be scanned, then you don't want to play that part because you're going to have to be flying in the air. And unless you have some special skills that I have not learned about, <laughs> you, they're going to need a digital double. You know, I think they're thinking like, if I audition for Law and Order, they're going to scan me. I don't think they're going to scan you if you're auditioning for Law and Order. There's no digital double necessary. Mm-hmm. Now, if they want to, let me get back to the background. So the background is also fearful that they're going to have these digital doubles and that it's going to replace them. No, my friends, it's not going to replace them. Your digital double only works and gets paid for you get paid every time you work and every time your digital double works. And they are not allowed to replace actors, background, uh, stunt people with a digital double and not compensate the the individual that they are utilizing that digital double with. We also have background minimums and not take away the existing background minimums as real humans that exist in our contract. That Those minimums still apply. You're not able to use a digital replica to replace part of the human count that exists in our contract for backgrounds. And there are a lot of job considerations that you would pass on something, Elaine. Somebody could say, hey, this role has a certain type of nudity. And Michelle would go, okay, well, I'm just simply not doing it. Uh, I understand. Exactly right. I, I very much understand the concern for, well, if you don't want to get scanned, then you may not get the job. And there's going to be a degree of that that is going to be accurate over time. But for that to come for someone like myself, who's more of a major role uh, performer or, or a guest star on most television, that may eventually get to the place where that comes into play, that they I do four days of a guest star instead of four days out of eight, and they want to use a digital replica for two of those days and for two days on there as a human. But we're still getting compensated for that plus P&H plus residuals. So – None of that is being lost in the in the guidelines yeah. that we have. And this is just the first effort. This is just the first pass of our guidelines yeah. with regards to this contract. And and also remember think about like the digital double that they would be utilizing if say Kevin was working five days and then they were like the three days you're you know, you just shot and you know, these two days we don't actually need you, you were gonna use your digital double. That digital double is not going to be in a scene with me. Like, I'm not going to all of a sudden, they're not going to shoot a scene where I'm talking to my digital double and we're having a conversation. That digital double will sort of be like if I was shooting a scene and the camera's on me and, you know, Kevin's going to be way in the background over there. Um, like they, they realize, oh, you know what? It would have been good if we had Kevin in the background as a reference. You'll, you'll only see him sort of, you'll recognize that it's, his character, but you're not necessarily going to be a, a close up on Kevin. So it's only for that kind of stuff. So instead of Kevin coming and spending the full day um, in my scenes while I'm doing all my stuff and him having to stand back there and not say one word at all, he gets to be paid while he possibly double dits and gets another job um, to shoot a different job while he's his digital double is doing that. So he could actually get two checks at the same time. Exactly. Th- that's the other thing that people are saying is that if they have a digital double of us, they're going to do whatever they want with us. No, <laughs> just like with no. me as an actor, they can't do whatever they want with me. It's consent. It's clear, defined information of what they need it for. And, and trust. One of the things that I think people don't realize is that, you know, with lawyers that we have for our union, they love to go to somebody and process a claim. They love that. 
If you have stuff, please bring it. Tell us, tell us. If you feel the production you worked on, did you foul with your digital double? Tell the union, because that is part of why we pay the dues to have these lawyers there for them to go after a production that has abused the rules and get you, you know, get you money. It'll never happen. And, And we have safeguards on when the person passes away, when they die. They can't use your digital double in any other way, willy-nilly. They will have to go to your estate, meaning any people in your family, ask them for permission. If that estate is not there, they have to go to the union. And the union will utilize the information that you have already given on consent of your other things and follow that suit. So it's not like if I said I don't want to ever do a movie that has me um, you know, naked or whatever, and then I die, and they're like, woo Michelle got me naked now. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Correct. We, we have words like clear and conspicuous. We have reasonable intended use. All of that language exists. And, you know, Elaine, just to address the fact that somebody are going to say, well, it's it's not perfect. No. You know what? There's an old joke that says that 99% of the laws are for 1% of the people because somebody somewhere is going to break something. There's no question that this is going to get breached. Uh, I've been saying it for two or three years now that eventually AI is going to make its way to the Supreme Court. Oh, yeah. It's going to may go past the sort of federal conversation regarding AI and the First Amendment. Sure, but as far as our work employment contract for this industry, the protections that we have built around this, they're not foolproof. They can't be. It's AI. But we have at least it set up in a situation where if someone does try to breach this, then we have a claims process and eventually, if necessary, an arbitration process. And then let's move on to the success-based streaming participation bonus. I would love to for you guys to be able to drill down a little bit. So I understand there's a fund. And again, I was asking Fran and Duncan about this after the press conference and and Duncan explained this. There's a fund and it sounds like 75% of that goes toward cast members who are on some of these high-performing shows that have met a certain threshold. And the other 25% of this fund, which the estimated valuation is $40 million, can be dispersed and redistributed the way SAG-AFTRA sees fit. Is that right? It is. Yes, I'm, I'm going to let this trustee speak. <laughs> Sorry, Michelle. Um, Sorry. Uh, um, yeah. You are absolutely right, my dear. Thank you for saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm signing off now. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, the one thing, first of all, everything you just said is correct. Now I want to speak on the nitty gritty of, of the reality of this fund. Mm-hmm. And I think I want everybody to take a deep breath and understand this. This is a brand new structure of new income. Nobody knows how this is going to work, right? I, I, I was actually going to speak on this as well as about the AI stuff. The beautiful thing about contracts, about the sag after contracts, and it's the reason why they're always three years, is we have to be nimble, right? We put language in there so that we can build upon language because we don't ever know exactly what the actual fruition of all of our wants are going to be sometimes, right? Especially with technology like that. So I'm glad that we have language in there that after two and a half years, because our strike has been going on for so long, when the next negotiation comes up, we are going to be able to view and examine what our AI protections have done and if we need to adjust. The same with the fund. The fund is brand spanking new. None of us know exactly how much money is going to come out and, and how that fund is going to fully be distributed. Because what we want to do is we want to distribute it to impact the most members, mm-hmm. right? So the success-based shows will be 
viewed for the 90 days, right? Because that's basically what happens when a show drops. Everybody right. watches it, binges it, and then they might cancel the streamer or whatever. And, you know, we go back. And that's the same time frame for the WGA version of this as well. Exactly. I think it's about 90 days, yeah. right? So we have our 90 days. And if you think about like right now, we're in November, December, so we're going to get back into production. So new things maybe get out in May. So 90 days from there. So we really are not going to know the monies and the actual fruition of all this stuff till September till the fall, basically, right? And at that point, we are going to be able to know what our monies actually are. And we are going to have trustees, we're going to have AMPTP people and, and sag after people as in the trustees, as a board to decide and to figure out how that's delineated. Now, if the money would be best served by lowering dues for everybody, bringing dues all the way down, which impacts every single one of our members, then that's where that 25% will go. If it is better to, you know, give it to just everybody else on the streaming platforms, because that's the, the just a little bite of it, maybe that's where it goes. But we are going to examine it. And we have to, we have to keep it nimble right now because if we lock ourselves into some concept and we find out that that doesn't work, then that's not smart business, right? So the fund is fantastic. Because this is a brand new source of income that our union has never had before. How hard was it to get them there to this point? Because there were, like you mentioned, the rev share proposal. There were several other iterations of this idea before you all landed on this that was finally agreed upon. That's absolutely correct. And I do want to say two things about the fund real quick, Elaine. Number one, please understand that we we have... Trustees that are equal. We have SAG after trustees and we have AMPTP trustees. It's not that there's like two people off in a corner <laughs> against 17 people coming up with what the structure is. It's even on both sides to create this. And also, these are not terms that are just stagnant. We can certainly have conversations going forward, just like any other part of our contract, that we negotiate or change, increase, massage, alter, whatever right. it may be in terms of the direction this business goes. This is plausible, of which will always be handled by those trustees. The journey to get here would be the journey I call the taffy machine. And that taffy machine, when you, you know, you stick it in, you pull things apart. The truth of the matter is, is we've already addressed this at the very beginning of this conversation today about how massive and expansive this contract has been. You could have made a negotiation just off of AI and the fund. Yeah just off of AI and revenue share. That could have been a negotiation all by itself, except for we had 137 things that we had to discuss. I just made that number up. Uh, And so, you know, it was a process. And Michelle even said it out loud and we laughed together that, you know, what are the, what's the old cliche, Michelle? Successful negotiations when both sides are a little bit unhappy. And I certainly would concur. I'm not chatting with Ted and David and, uh, you know, Donna and and, uh, Bob, but I'm, I'm going to probably say that there's a lot of happiness on both sides and there's some unhappiness on both sides. There you go. Mm-hmm. And now, lastly, both of you have been in this business a long time. I'm curious, what are some items that maybe weren't headliner items, but you consider personal wins that would have really benefited you when you were first starting out, when you were, you know, more journeyman actor who could benefit, you know, which will benefit, uh, you know, the majority of the journeyman actors and in the union. Yeah. Well, as a woman of color, <laughs> my big one is the consultation for hair and makeup. You're absolutely right. I have been in this industry for about three decades. <laughs> um, don't, don't say it. I don't say, say it. Don't say it. <laughs> moisturizer, moisture, moisture, moisture. Um, but I will tell you, and it's, um, it's heartbreaking that probably, well, I, I mean, maybe there's 1%, I was going to say 100%, but 99% of the people of color who you speak to, who are, um, you know, let's say 
20 and above have always had to deal with inequities when it comes to hair and makeup. Majority of us wake up two hours early. We do our own hair. We bring our own base. My brothers, the people, the men of color, they've had horrific stories about being scarred because the people who are shaving them don't know how to shave a black person's beard because our hair is different. It's really about respect and safety and health and dignity. And to be told to go away and go to a salon and get yourself done somewhere else is so disrespectful when you can walk into a hair and makeup trailer and you could see every single person in the crew sitting at the table like who looks like Kevin getting their hair, you know, their, their beard shades, their hair done, all kinds of stuff. But then you have the black actors, black actors, Latino actor, every, every actor who has a, a ethnic hair are subjected to, and I will say it feels humiliating. It feels humiliating to walk into a room and have someone go, Oh, I love your hair. It's great. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to pull it all back or we're going to straighten it down or we're going to do all these, you know, destructive things to my gentle curls. It's not acceptable anymore. And the fact that we have that now, and, and trust me, this is the same thing. Like I was saying about how our contract and every contract is a living contract. You want it to be living because you want to move the um, dial. I have been advocating to have qualified HMU people in the room. Do you know that when you get your certificate from cosmetology school, you don't ever have to study ethnic hair. I, mm. I, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. And I have a problem with that. And I will continue to push that until my last breath that that changes. It hasn't changed right now. So what we have now is we have consultation, which is, by the way, like, and people are like, what does that mean? That's so that if I, you know, um, am working with you, Elaine, right? And I, I say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a consultation with you. And I say, hi, it's so nice to meet you. What are your thoughts about what you want to do with my hair? You'll tell me. And I say, oh, that's great. How do you think you're going to get there? From that consultation, I'm going to know real quick whether you know how to do my hair or not. And now I have the ability. So it gives the performer some more agency and takes the onus off of the performer to provide their own adequate hair and makeup. You would never ha hire a cameraman who only knows how to work with a lens, a hundred, the lens is 150 and 75. I don't know how to do 35. You hire them because he mm -hmm. knows how to use all the lenses. Why would you hire people in hair and makeup that don't know how to do all the people? I mean, of course... I, I see intimacy coordinator, more strict restrictions about that, more guidelines about that. I, again, I would like to see intimacy coordinators mandated on every single set that has a, in their script any form of intimacy work, which means just a kiss. If there's a kiss in this script, you need to allocate it. It's just like if you had a script that had stunts. At the beginning of production, you allocate funds for a stunt coordinator. Animals. Beginning of production, you allocate money for an animal wrangler. Children. You allocate money at the beginning for tutoring. It should be exactly the same thing. Hire, if you have that firearms. in your script. Yes, firearms. You, you, you see firearms. You have an armorer. Allocate that funds before anything else is happening. It should be the same thing with intimate work. When you have a script that says that, the first thing you need to do is find an IC that will work well with your actors. And with both intimacy coordinators and this new hair and makeup provision, are these both first-time provisions that have been in these contracts? These aren't expanding upon previous, you know, language, right? The IC is expanding because okay. the first time I brought it up, which was 2020, they told <laughs> 2020, us- 2020, we got it. 2020, they said that we didn't have enough ICs, which we still don't have enough ICs to mandate that. 
Mm. So I said, I'm patient because I'm patient, children. I am patient. So we couldn't do that. So we, we're here now. I said, do we have enough ICs now to mandate it? We do not. So we got more language to make it even more clear that the, an actor has a right to re- request it, to the producer is tasked to find the IC, and we're going to have signage, ways of reporting, all that kind of stuff. So we're just expanding on our contract when it comes to sexual harassment prevention and IC sort of stuff. And that's going to continue until we don't have to talk about it anymore. Really, that'll happen. Interesting. Yeah, for sure. And what about you, Kevin? What's a what's a big win for you in this? I mean, there's an element of what Michelle said that's similar to what we would say, you know, teachers having to buy their school supplies. So that's that's kind of the analogy that I might use for what she just said. Mine is going to go to an element of the contract negotiations that didn't get discussed a lot in public prior to just because it's convoluted and it's difficult trying to explain our high budget SVOD. Uh, streaming residuals and how they're calculated and distributors gross receipts and distributors based. They're just difficult to discuss. But for me, it is the high budget AVOD Mm. element of our contract because we haven't had any of those terms before. And yet we've had so much conversation and watching where streaming is going that I think most of us can agree that eventually television is just going to be what we call television. It just won't necessarily be what we call broadcast television versus and broadcast cable, you know, appointment television versus non-appointment television. So to get into the high-budget AVOD, which is ad-supported video on demand, you had a lot of conversations going into this no- negotiation about fast TV, mm. which mm-hmm. is free ad, free ad-supported television. Fast-growing space right now. Which is just television. So mm-hmm. the fact that we didn't have established terms for high-budget AVOD and the fact that we are now have those as basically equal to high-budget SVOD, that element for me, for someone who's been a guest star performer for most of his career, that element, getting that in there, I even made a, I even made a joking side bet with one of our staff members during the negotiation about how much high-budget AVOD is going to absolutely explode in terms of our budgets and how many more streaming entities are going to have either a hybrid or a flat-out ad-supported platform. Uh, to me, the high-budget AVOD terms that we added to this negotiation are particularly huge. Uh, you just can't really talk about it in public because it gets too difficult to confuse the general public in terms of something that's made for broadcast television that gets moved over to streaming or something that's made for streaming versus 13 weeks and 26 weeks. And as the old joke goes, Elaine, I was told there'd be no math. So uh, <laughs> we don't we don't talk about it a lot. But the high-budget AVOD terms that we got in this negotiation uh, equal to high-budget SVOD would be my particular element. And then sadden for you know some of the things that you don't get because this is part of what people will talk about. It's, it's very frustrating to not get what you want in rest periods and meal periods and late fees and some of these things related to back a couple of things for background or a couple th- uh, one thing for stunts and one thing for dancers. Yep. And, you know, unfortunately, you just come back and you just you keep fighting for them. But this was such a unique, massive behemoth negotiation that there's an element where, you know, if you get 70, 75 percent of something and yet you get AI and we have self-tape provisions, not perfect, but we have them. You have a fun, not perfect, but we have it. You get to the place where you go, well, uh, on to the next one uh, because it was still pretty successful in, in an awful lot of ways. That's right. And going back to the high-budget AVOD, the ad tier supported streaming services, it's very timely right now because we've seen Disney+, Plus, Netflix. There are so many more ad-supported streaming services now. And you're right, it's basically the rebundling of 
old school TV for the internet. I know, right? You know, we have programs, we have ads, we have all these different networks. I mean, we got rid of two tiers, Elaine. You know how big that is? We had three, we have these tiers of of trigger thresholds of where you get paid a certain amount of money. We Mm -hmm. collapsed tier one and two into, Mm -hmm. into tier three. That we, we literally combine. So now you already start out with, sorry, Michelle, uh, yeah. jump, you can jump on it, right? You can start out now. You start out now at what tier one is, has now combined tier ones and two. You have one, two, and three now. It's just one tier. That's a significant change and a significant amount of money that's now the bottom level as opposed to having to go three steps up. So just mm-hmm. stuff like that is really a good gain. So how do we navigate? And now that we've had so much time to see how these things really bet out, we get to now use our contracts to put words in there, to put language in there, to protect ourselves from the things that have been happening and been incredibly egregious. And that's why the contracts, again, that's why the contracts are only three years, so that we can live with them, so that we can figure out what is helpful. Because we didn't know that the streaming platforms, that the streaming programming, that 10 episodes, you know, this kind of matrix was going to be the way it is. I had no idea that I could do a show that would take me away for five months. They would do 10 episodes and I'm a series regular. And all of a sudden I'm waiting two or three years to find out if my show is getting picked up, let alone if I'm going to be picked up with that show. Three years? I was used to three months after linear television Mm -hmm. this summer. Now all of a sudden that shortened 10 episodes, that means 10 paychecks are supposed to keep me alive for three or four years. And that's something I've heard both from writers and actors, the way the work cycle has so been disrupted by the streaming economy. And given that we're, you know, 10, 15 years into the proper streaming economy now, this seems like the first contract that's really strived to, to catch up to a lot of the digital disruption. Now, it was a lot of ground to to cross, right? It's a big bridge to cross. Do you feel like it's close enough to your satisfaction with where the industry is and, and how forward-facing the contract is. Well, I'm, I'm going to answer like this. It's funny you said 10 to 15 years. 10 to 15 years ago, for somebody who's predominantly done a lot of television, you know, you'd make $8,500 in a week. And people hear you say that who live elsewhere out in the world and think, oh, my goodness. And it's like, yeah, but you're, you're not guaranteed that you do that every single week. It is difficult to get hired. But the reality is, is that the one thing you were guaranteed of in linear television was the first domestic rerun of that episode, which was common when streaming wasn't what it was, mm-hmm. is you would get 100% of that paycheck. That's right. So you were basically guaranteed another $8,500. Well, over the last 10 or 15 years, that guarantee of a domestic rerun has gone bye-bye because they moved it over from linear broadcast television over to a streaming platform. And we are still, even with this negotiation, we are still not all the way to the terms right. that basically when something moves over, I, I'm not going to see that $8,500. We're getting closer. But to answer your question, we're not quite there, but we are much further along. But you have to look at the time in between. That time in between, all the millions and millions and millions of dollars they have saved off of writers and actors to your question, Elaine, is, is part of the reason why we wound up walking out of the room and going on strike. And it's another example of why we move pension caps after 41 years. There's a lot of things in this contract that haven't been touched. And we're getting closer to that, you know, 100% rerun, but we're still not quite there in terms of money. We're not. Yeah. Not quite. Yeah. And am I fully satisfied with IC stuff? No. 
Am I fully satisfied with the hair and makeup stuff? Nope. We didn't even mention PCAP. PCAP performance capture was, it took 20 years. I mean, have we, we all watch Avatar. We watch Polar Express. So many of those movies that there were performance capture, you know, those were actors, uh, Planet of the Apes, you know, Andy Serkis, all these sort of things, right? 20 years it's taken for us to get words in the contract to say, to acknowledge that performance capture are actors, mm. are actors and dancers and stunt people. It didn't, we didn't get everything we wanted in there, but because we got the words in there, just like I said about the fund, they now acknowledge, we got it in writing that they acknowledge that performance capture are done by actors. That means I can build on that. I couldn't even have them acknowledge that for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Now that they have it in them, ooh, we're going to build, we're going to hold them accountable for that. And we're going to build on it and build on it. So uh, um, no, I'm, I'm not, you know, a hundred percent satisfied with all of the gains, but I understand what negotiations are. I understand the power of language uh, in contracts. I understand that we have the ability to be nimble, to be facile, to grow with this contract. Kevin's heard me say this many times and I'm going to say it again. <laughs> um, I mean, look at me. I've, <laughs> Go got, ahead. I've got Michelle Obama on my thing. Uh, you know, people of color, we didn't walk across the bridge in Selma just to sit at the counter. We didn't even just walk across the bridge to work at the diner. We walked across the bridge so that we would have the ability to own the diner. But we can't own the diner before we get to sit at the counter, work at the counter, and then own the diner. This right now, we're at the counter. Some of the clauses, we're, we're managers. Some of the clauses, we're still walking across the bridge. But I have a long memory. I have a focus, a laser focus on what is right. And myself, I'm not the only one. There are hundreds of people behind me or beside me who have that same focus. And we will not stop. That's the whole thing. The only way that these provisions, that things that we want can go away is if we allow them to. We can't forget. We can't lose focus. We need to stay focused and strong and united in getting more and more rights in the contract. It's a You can have three heavy pieces of furniture in your house that are hard to move a little bit or adjust a little bit because you need to move them. It's much harder to get them out of the moving truck and into the house. And a mm -hmm. lot of what's in this contract, which wasn't in the house, is now actually in the house. And that's part of what a lot of what this negotiation was about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So it looks like we have the, the foundational material then looking out at this next era of possible technological disruption. That's right. Thank you so much for your time, Michelle and Kevin. Really appreciate you being able to break down, get into the granular on some of the most important parts of this contract, as well as the parts that matter to you all. Because again, this is just a, a broad ranging contract. I know there have been three or four items that are headliners, but there's there's a lot of ground to cover. And I'm sure the membership will be learning more about it in the days to come. So thank you again. Thank you so much. My appreciate pleasure. It. All right. Thanks again to uh, Michelle and Kevin for making time to join this special edition of the Ankler podcast. Just a reminder, you can follow us here at the Ankler on the socials at the Ankler and uh, subscribe to get the full suite of newsletters and podcasts at theankler.com. We'll, of course, have a brand new episode of our regular weekly Ankler podcast with Richard, Elaine, and myself on Friday, including Richard's experience at the Netflix Cup. Richard and sports, you've been warned. Anyway, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.